Lingard is joining in, and he's seen Martinelli! Extraordinary! Set it for Saliba! For Kyle Saka, beaten out by the roof, and touched in by Jesus! Kyle Saka! Hello, hello, and welcome to the Bruised Banana FC podcast. My name is Justin. You can find me on Twitter at JFishAFC. And apologies since the podcast has taken a couple weeks off. All the guys, you know, we all went on holiday and I moved into a new house, started a new job across the country. So we took a little bit of a hiatus, you know, before the summer transfer window really kicked things off. But we are back now and we're going to start our summer transfer window content. It's going to be an exciting summer. It's going to be a fun summer. It's pretty clear already that Edu and Arteta really mean business this summer and aren't afraid to spend money. It's kind of what all Arsenal fans want this summer, right? We we got in the champion, Champions League. We have all of that extra revenue. We have the increased revenue from finishing second, and all of our expectations are you know, that we're going to build from here and, and from what we accomplished last season and, and really to continue to push Manchester City. With me today to talk about all the latest transfer rumors and links is Luke. You can find on Twitter at Echelkoon. Luke, how's it going? Yeah, good, mate. To, to be honest, I'm wondering if I still support the same club because it just feels like every day is 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 hectic with stuff actually happening, which is something that I've not really seen from Arsenal in pretty much the whole time I've supported them um, at this stage of the window. So um, I'm filled with a lot of enthusiasm and also I'm scared chillest. So, you know, it's going to be good. I know it does seem like every day, every couple of days, there are really credible links to players that you know are going to cost 50 to 60 million pounds. And it's like, oh yeah, it seems like they are willing to go to financial levels that we do not associate with Arsenal. But we'll get on to that in a second. We also have Drew, who you can find on Twitter, at MixKidRemix. Drew, how's it going, buddy? Just well, Drew has disappeared from us. So, but, well, uh, Luke, let's kick things off with uh, Kai Havertz <laughs> and, and kind of wait until Drew, maybe he, he heard my introduction and said, F this, I'm done for the summer. I want to go back on holiday. It's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but Luke, we got the, the David Ornstein bomb that we have agreed a 50 or 60 million pound fee with 5 million add-ons for Kai Havertz. Uh, this is one that I think took fans a little bit of a, a little bit of time to kind of get on board because he's been wearing it wearing an ugly shade of blue for the past couple of years and given where Chelsea are at with FFP there's this kind of underlying sentiment that it feels like we're bailing them out that they have to sell players and we're kind of when we first started these negotiations shall we say they wanted 70 million pounds I think it was and we basically you're 65 and we basically gave them exactly what they wanted with 60 plus five is really not much of a discount but let's put that aside and kind of just talk about the player um Luke yeah what what are you I guess going back to maybe I'll wait for Drew because he he definitely follows Germany and Bayer Leverkusen but what I guess what what characteristics about Kai Havertz make him a player that Arteta is so willing to, you know, immediately basically meet Chelsea's valuation and say, this is the player I want. I do and Arteta kind of have that history with Ramsdale, with Ben White, just saying, you know, identifying players and saying, yeah, uh, it's not really negotiating a ton and they have the attributes and qualities and it's worked out well. It, it just kind of seems like Kai, this Kai Havertz thing kind of came out of the blue. 
It really did come out of the blue, to be honest. I think um, when you're looking at the links we had to Mount, it felt quite apparent that we were after that that creative midfielder, the more advanced midfielder that can make runs into the box. And Tifo did a really, really interesting video on on Arsenal replacing Granit Xhaka, where a really kind of big aspect of, okay. of that video was a midfielder that can make more runs into the box. So in that aspect, we've almost kind of signed one of the, the most perfect midfielders possible, because you're signing a 24-year-old Premier League proven, um, Champions League goal-scoring winner, um, and a player that makes more runs into the box than the majority, if, if not like the heavy majority of, of midfielders in the Premier League. So I think in terms of, of profile, even though it, it did catch us all by surprise, and I think, to be honest, it, it, it probably took me longer to get my head around the fact that we were actually going to like be after him than it's taken Arsenal to negotiate and, and seemingly finalise a deal. But I think that now that you've had a bit of time to to rest on it and think about it and and kind of analyze the positives which as i was saying you know is a guy he has premier league experience 24 years old we saw the talent he had at leverkusen we know how versatile he is obviously we're still not 100% sure on what the plan is for him but we know for certain that arteta will have a plan for him and i think um uh, there's been like a re- some really good discussion on, on twitter about um the fact that he's played under Lampard, Tuchel, um, uh, and then he played under Potter and then kind of back under Lampard and now he's going to go under Pochettino. It's a lot of very differing footballing ideas that where he came into Chelsea in a season that ended up being the COVID season where, you know, he was very shut off from the world. It's probably one of the hardest seasons for a young player to come over with such a big sum of money and make a debut and, and be impactful. And it's not really, other than the fact that obviously he's, score the winning goal in the Champions League final, in terms of general performances, you'd say it hasn't worked out as Chelsea would have hoped it worked out because it looked like they were signing what looked at Leverkusen to be a very, very, dare I say, generational player. And um, now they're letting him leave because he's got two years left on his contract, doesn't want to sign a new one. But the fact that Arteta is now garnering such a, a brilliant reputation with buying and developing young players and, and really taking them up a level. People like Havertz and I saw, um, I'm sure we'll talk about Timber later, but like Emmanuelson was talking earlier about um, how good Arteta's done of young players and why that could be a good move for Timber. And I think Havertz has probably spoken to Arteta. Arteta said, this is where I see for you in our team. This is how we're going to play. And this is how this is you're going to factor into this. And he's probably thinking, this is such a breath of fresh air. Finally, someone actually tells me how I can play, how I can improve and why I factor in the team other than the fact he spent the last few years at Chelsea kind of just being shoehorned into various areas and hoping for the best. Yeah, I, I definitely think all, that point at the end, I, I think that what Mikel Arteta has shown that he's you know, through the recruitment process is kind of exactly what you're alluding to there. You know, he identifies characteristics and he has very defined roles in, in his system. And whenever, you know, we approach these big money signings, these key marquee signings every summer, it does seem like, you know, he, I guess all the word that comes out is, you know, he speaks to the player and is, you know, they're fully convinced just by, you know, he has a clear plan in place and a clear vision for the role that they're going to play. And that's something, like you said, that that is has not been at Chelsea for a while. 
Well, Drew decided to join on the podcast. Uh, I guess, Drew, we were introducing you and then you were no longer there. Everybody knows that you left and you, you wanted to go back on a holiday right after I was introducing everybody. But you are here. So why don't you say hello and kind of talk about you know what made Kai Havertz such a generational type player when he, he was at Bayer Leverkusen and kind of what aspects of Arteta and Arsenal I, I can kind of get the best out of him. Uh, so yeah, first of all, it's uh, good to be back chatting with you guys. Hi, it's, been, it's been a while. Hi, Luke. How are you? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just do for this time before we started, but sorry about the internet stuff. Um, anyway, so Havertz, uh, I think it, when the deal first broke, or the rumor of the deal first breaking a few days ago before you know we've made the gains that we have, I was instantly happy about it, but being as I, how I am, I automatically had questions of how are we going to use him? And I mulled over it for about maybe 12 hours or so, 24 hours or so. And I ended up writing a piece about it for work, about how I think um, our title will get the best out of Havertz. And there's so much about his profile on the singular level that to me points to him being almost kind of like another Martin Odegaard, not in place of or instead of, but together with him in the same midfield three, which for me, in my opinion, works to the reason why we're going after someone like a Declan Rice, who with Thomas Partey potentially leaving in the summer, you look at Rice as being that number six now with how good Rice is um, covering space, uh, both in front of the defensive line, and but also he knows how to read the game ahead of him when more forward-thinking players go, go, go forward and kind of create and, and, and look to get in front of the goal. So I think if you use those two players in midfield, it suits. But for Havertz specifically, a lot of people don't know that Thomas Tuchel was like the first manager who really looked at him as trying to really mold him into a false nine. He played there very sparsely at Leverkusen. I think he only featured there nine times uh, in the four seasons he had in the first team there. He scored eight goals. I think a lot of people look at that and say, oh, well, he could be a forward. I think for me, with false nines, they're so uh, tactically specific. Like You have to have a very certain system for them to really shine. He didn't get that at Chelsea. And, and in fairness, there isn't a single attacking player I can think of at Chelsea over the last two or three years that really, really shone through. And players that previously did kind of fell by the wayside. Mason Mount had a horrendous season last season. Even the season prior to that, Mount wasn't very, very good. And they rely so heavily on wingbacks, and they don't really like to play the ball through the middle and let players create, you know, create their own space. It's far too rigid for a club of that stature, in my opinion. So I think that's one of the main reasons why he failed. And also, he's never been a really efficient finisher, even at Leverkusen. One season, he scored 17 goals in Bundesliga, but even still, he wasn't, by the by the numbers, incredibly efficient in front of goal, although he would still score goals. That's the, the types of goals that he would score. I think you see how maybe Arteta might use them. He's so good at making late runs into the box. He's so good at creating space, but also exploiting space that's created for him. And when you see the types of the, the, the passes he receives are always in key areas in the final third. Um, so I think, you know, operating that kind of like in that left half space um, through the central channel, you might see him pop up on the right because both him, him and Odegaard are very, very mobile when they're on the ball, but also off the ball. So I think getting a lot of interchangeability uh, if you see them together in the same team. I think provisionally he can play as a false nine, but I don't think that's why we're buying him. I think it's it's a, it's an asset about his profile. Like uh, we've, we've talked about before with Arteta, he wants players that can play two, three, and four positions, right? And at least he can rely on them sparsely if necessary. But I think, and we've talked about this in the side chat, and I know Luke was a big proponent of this, is you see how 
how good Leandro Trossard was as, as a nine for us because of certain parts of his game. I think it's more realistic to maybe think that if we're not studying Jesus at nine, we might see Trossard there. And I still think we're going to predominantly see Havertz either in midfield or maybe on the right wing sometimes. I think the, the, he's so good on the ball. He's very, He can be very, very progressive. He can actually defend quite decently in the high press. He knows how to press. He's good in the air. A lot of people don't know that about his game on both sides of the ball. I think for me, he kind of profiles as that that mobile left-sided eight that a lot of fans were wanting to see. Someone like Mohamed Kudus come in and, and operate in that same capacity. In Havertz, you get a lot of those same characteristics, but in a better profile, a more experienced profile. Again, scoring and winning the Champions League. He played at Champions League for Leverkusen before he even arrived at Chelsea. So I think, and you're, he's still in Germany, despite <laughs> Germany being an absolute mess, and even they're still kind of utilizing him in a way that I don't think is preferred. He still starts for Germany more often than not. So there's still a lot of people that have a lot of faith in him. I think his skill set and his talent level are undeniable. I just think if he was at Chelsea where they were just so tactically disjointed, I think under a system like Arteta's, I think we wouldn't be throwing out 65 million pounds on a player who just came off some turbulent years at a rival if we didn't know for sure we had a plan for him and that we could get the best out of him. Yeah, I think that Kai Havertz is a player who is you know, elite at receiving the ball in the half space. He is elite, like you said, Drew, at making the forward runs into the box and receiving uh, progressive passes. And you, if you remove position from the equation, you just think of where you know, on the, I guess the location on the pitch, do we use, utilize that? It's, it's obviously that Granit Xhaka role in, in the left eight and make turning it from, I guess, kind of where I want to take this conversation next is some of the, like the downstream effects of the potential summer business and kind of our team of bringing in somebody who was basic, was Chelsea striker and now turning him into our left eight. That's a very, Luke, a, a very different paradigm, bringing a player back rather than what we had been doing and taking you know, kind of ostensibly a six in Grant Jacka and moving him forward. That That's, it, it is kind of a pretty big shift in kind of the way that we're going to play. It's granted, it's going to be significantly more attacking, but you know, we do have to make some, I guess, adjustments to the system to, you know, because of everything that Grant Jacka provided defensively and stuff. And, and where do you think that kind of let's start at the front. Uh, Drew talked a little bit about Trussard and and before he brought that up, that's exactly where I was going to go. That I think this move really signals to me that Trussard is going to be playing not almost exclusively as a nine. And you kind of will likely see more Smith Rowe uh, playing on the left wing since we're bringing in this big money eight Uh, kind of, where do you, where do you see some of the big downstream effects, I guess? Yeah, I think that, I mean, First of all, the best thing to look at is is how every year under Arteta we we evolve to, to such like almost an unexpected degree. Like the season before the the one we've just seen, um, we had come off of Tierney having a really good season. There was no n- real kind of need on the surface for us to change that, but we did. We brought in Zinchenko and we absolutely kind of completely evolved that role to go from kind of a pretty standard orthodox left-back role to obviously having a completely almost ultra-inverted left-back that was essentially playing as a central midfielder for the majority of the season. So the first thing I'd say is you can't really predict Arteta because he's got plans. <laughs> he has plans that, that none of us can really know or properly anticipate. And I'm sure he's got another plan um, in in the pipe for 
or how we're going to evolve to to have possibly you know playing with two dual tens in in Havertz and Odegaard both on the same pitch and I do think that not to say that he's not good at tracking back and stuff because because Drew was talking in group chat the other day that he's quite quite good at that but I do think that if you're going to give him that license to go forward as much as I would imagine we can give him the license to go forward, then you do have to make some form of concessions. And I think Rice does come into that. I think that having his ball-winning ability and his mobility does help um, uh, kind of cover up those transition elements. And also I think that when you've got two central defenders like Saliba and Gabriel, then you've also got people that um, when the ball kind of goes into those transitions, they're so powerful and dominant that they can um, they can stop that being quite as uh, as effective as they would normally be. Um, I do think that, you know, we, we talk a lot about kind of a box midfield. We, we played something of a box midfield this season-ish. Um, and we've, we talk about how we're going to do that in the sense of, of Havertz. If Havertz is going to play as kind of... Uh, more so of a 10 than Jack. Obviously, Jack Oid runs into the box, but it was it was sparingly. If, if Havertz is going to be a guy that his, one of his primary focuses is making runs into the box, which I think it should be, because um, uh, in terms of that, he'll be probably the best person in the squad at making those runs, then I do think that you might have to look at Odegaard playing a little bit deeper in some aspects. I think that you may have a more defined pivot um, uh, there behind um, behind that kind of attacking five in Martinelli, Havertz, Jesus, um, Odegaard and, and Saka. And potentially you're going to have to look at, at how you kind of defend that space if we're going to lose it in that areas. Because as I say, Rice is very mobile. Then you have someone like Zinchenko who in terms of ball retention, which, you know, is a defensive aspect of the game as well. Like if you keep the ball enough, then you're not going to get attacked as much. But when people attack his space, um, uh, is he, obviously he's not the best person at defending it. So I think that maybe having Rice that can step across and, and cover that space, but also maybe having Rice as a left-sided um, central midfielder, which may be why we're bringing in Timber, where some of the reporting on Timber, even though he's been playing almost exclusively as a centre-back for Ajax, a lot of the reporting has been around that we wanted a right-sided Zinchenko. So maybe it could be a factor that in some games we have... Rice playing on the left-hand side where he can almost kind of cover those areas that Xhaka was quite good at covering, especially when Tierney used to go forward and used to cover that left-back area. So we still have a midfielder that can cover those areas. And then Timber can kind of step into central midfield and be what his stats seem to show to be a, a pretty like 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 um I remember Justin used the term unicorn of a player for Zinchenko last season. You look at some of the Timber's stats and he looks <laughs> he looks like we may have two uh, unicorns in the team in that sense because some of his technical stats are, are bordering off of the charts and obviously there's some Ajax tax there because Ajax are posi- uh, possessionally one of the most dominant teams in that league but I still think that some of those stats are, are, are pretty unbelievable so I think that there will be knock-on effects and obviously as I say before it's really hard to predict Arteta and what he's going to do and how we're going to evolve but for me um, it wouldn't surprise me if we looked at moving towards a block, uh, kind of a box midfield where you have like um, a ball winner and ball carrier kind of on one side and then more of a controller on the other side, like the, the Zinchenkos, the, the Jorginhos and perhaps someone like Timber. And then you have kind of a, a like like we've seen with Man City, like a back three behind him, like we saw Arteta try against Nottingham Forest, where you have 
Gabriel and Saliba, who are completely physically dominant. And then you've got Ben White, who does have really good physical attributes, but also is, a, is really, really technical as well. And obviously, Timber could also play on the right side of the back three as well. And then you've also got Kirio that can play on the left-hand side. And we've got Tomiyasu hopefully come back. So it feels like if we were to get all of these signings in, in these positions, and you know who knows when we get over the line, it feels like if we're moving to that type of system, we'd have a lot of coverage in a lot of areas. And then also we're talking about where people like, like I feel like Trossard probably suits us more as a striker than Nketiah does. It wouldn't surprise me if we were to sell Nketiah and Balogun because we'd have Jesus, um, Balogun, sort of Jesus, Trossard and Havertz who could all play as that nine at different parts of the game. So um, it's something that I'm really interested in seeing in pre-season because I remember last pre-season we were playing at times like a like a 3-1-4-2 where Martinelli was almost coming back as a wing back and Nketiah was going up front with Vezus and we're having like kind of a single pivot um, behind the midfields. But it's something that we didn't really touch much when we actually went into the season, probably because we found such a good balance for what we were eventually doing. But it does seem to me like Arteta is willing to to experiment with a back three because we've seen it in the past. Well, thank you, Luke, for uh providing such a uh detailed and uh, all encompassing uh I guess summary of what's to come i think we don't really need to do any podcasts for the rest of the summer because yeah that, that was great <laughs> unless oh. unless i'm completely wrong <laughs> all jokes aside i guess you know going back to my original question in, in terms of you know what sacrifices or i guess what do we need to adjustments need to be made maybe the simple answer is well if you're going to sign yeah, bring, you're going to sign a player like kai havertz to play as your left eight well the, the way you solve defensively as you spend a hundred million pounds on a six and, and it looks like we're going to get pretty close to that. <laughs> simple answer. The simple answer is just drop a hundred million pounds on a six to who can do everything. So you can play with a much more attacking eight. And obviously it's, it's much more complicated than that. But Luke, I'm going to stay with you here with, you know, the, the Declan Rice negotiations, how much of the negotiations where, you know, we've, we've submitted two bids where it seems like two things are happening, in my opinion. West Ham want they want a really high upfront fee, while and they also want you know shorter term in in term in shorter terms and like more achievable add-ons, I guess. And it seems like we are negotiating that they can have you know one of those. They can either have much more upfront over a much longer term, you know, paying uh, all that all that over you know five or six years something, versus less upfront more quickly kind of thing, which seems like a very fair negotiation. There's been a lot of, I want to hear your perspective on, you know, Arsenal fans are kind of, it seems like are maybe overreacting to the fact that we've submitted two bids that have been rejected immediately. And people are you know, very probably just nervous that, you know, all these reports that, Oh, well, West Ham or Manchester city are just kind of waiting and Manchester United are waiting to see if we, the deal falls through first, I guess, how concerned are you that this deal may fall through? And if Declan Rice goes to a team like Manchester city, then it's kind of game over for the rest of us. And also just like, you know, the negotiation tactic, we, we obviously don't know exactly what goes into it, but you know, I'm fine personally with Edu negotiating, especially when you're paying this much money on a player that you know, is really important to both teams that West Ham obviously don't want him to would prefer to not have to sell him. They obviously know they're going to, and they also know that we want him. Edu also knows that you know he wants to come to Arsenal, and Arsenal's his preferred choice. But yeah, I guess what's kind of your take on where things stand? 
I'm I'm not worried to be honest. And and the reason I'll tell you why I'm not worried is because I'm not sure if the teams that are reported to to be imminently coming in are actually going to come in because the way I see it is is in, in my completely like uneducated opinion with no uh, no nothing even close to that's what all of our opinions are, Luke. We're all uneducated. That's <laughs> yeah, why I'm we're just, behind just the clarifying. microphone. <laughs> just clarifying. Um, uh, it, it, my, my opinion is that essentially West Ham know he's going and Rice has potentially told them that he's coming here or, you know, so I, I feel like West Ham are, are quite realist in, in the fact that they have to negotiate with us and they're only really going to negotiate with us and, and they need to get the best price out of us. So, I mean, it was about a week ago that we heard two other unnamed clubs are come in within 24 hours. That never happens. Then we've seen Man City are potentially looking at making their approach. Now we're hearing Manchester United might offer Maguire or McTominay as some sort of, you know, some sort of like make way for him. So my um, my opinion is most likely that West Ham are, are trying to brief media to say, you know, Arsenal better offer more money or eventually someone's going to come in. We keep hearing something coming imminently, but it's at the moment in time, it's not happening. And maybe, you know, I've not checked it since we started this. Maybe I'll look there now and it'll be Manchester City over the hundred million and I'll look stupid, but it wouldn't honestly wouldn't surprise me if in about a week and a half, two weeks time, we're still sitting here. No one other than Arsenal's bids. Eventually Arsenal West Ham finds some sort of price on some sort of 100 million ish price point, And it just comes to us. I just think that at the end of the day, West Ham are looking for as much money as they can. And that's absolutely fair enough. And at the same time, Arsenal are um, looking at getting um, probably as much taken off it as they can because obviously, as we're quite plainly seeing, there's a massive outlay. And I think that in this summer, more than most summers, is not the summer where fans should be saying, just pay the extra 10, 15, 20 million to get over the line quickly. Because if we want to get in 200 plus millions worth of talent, we're going to have to try and negotiate the best deals we can for these players. So at this moment, I'm not worried. But the, probably the caveat I'll put to that was I wasn't actually worried about Mudrick either. And then we'd end up not getting him. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. Drew, let's let's talk about the other, I guess, surprising transfer link. And in, in, it's a lot more than, I guess, just a link now is the player that Luke talked about earlier, uh, the center back from Ajax, uh, so I'm going to butcher his first name, Urian Timber. Uh, he's somebody that, you know, I'm not super familiar with, but when you look him up on you know, FB ref and look at, you know, the counting stats, obviously looking just at his you know passing, he's 99th percentile in basically every single passing statistic, which sounds great to me. Obviously, like Luke said, there's a little bit of an IX tax in there that, you know, possession wise, they, they, have so much of the ball that it, it needs to be discounted a little bit. What What is your take on this player and this fit and kind of, it does seem like there's significant concrete, you know, bit we've, we've submitted bids. It does seem like something that's going to happen and kind of building off of Luke's description of kind of what the system may look like in kind of the thought behind bringing in another center back stroke right back that is highly possession oriented. So I think, <clears throat> Like he, he profiles quite well with um, what I tell once for not just uh, center back or right back, but any player coming into Arsenal, they have to be of a certain technical quality, and that's important to note. 
and that's something very similar that Pep Guardiola used to talk about all the time, where he said you can always teach a player to pass or receive, um, but if you but you can't. It's hard to teach players to be at a certain technical standard that you want and need for your system to excel. So I think that's why we're looking at players like you know Rice or Havertz or, or Timber. Um, it, it means that they can adapt to what his needs are quite quickly. <clears throat> I think that's actually super important. Um, for me as a player, I think there's some misconceptions around him. Though he's not, I don't personally see him coming in to ever operate in an midfield capacity. How he works with an Ajax, um, because they do play a high line, uh, they do press quite high as well, um, and they press early. Well, even though he plays centre-back, he exclusively played centre-back this season, and the two seasons before this season, he only played uh, right back, I think it was 12 times combined in the last three seasons. So he's basically a centre-back. But the difference is how Ajax use their centre-backs, no matter who the manager was, is he steps very high into midfield. He presses quite high, and that way is almost kind of like Sleeby and Gabriel very similarly, where the, the one will lead the press and one might sit back a little bit to, to cover in case they get beat. Timber does that quite well. Um, but the thing is he has, I would probably say, better recovery pace than both of them. So I think a lot of those maybe player traits have a lot of fans thinking, well, he might be used as an inverted right back. I think there's some scope to suggest he could be. And we kind of saw that at the tail end of last season where when we had the um, – start Kivior at left back because you know, Zinchenko was out of form, Tierney isn't trusted anymore, and then we saw Thomas Partey shifted to right back, and the roles were reversed, and Partey became that inverted right back, whereas Kivior became a more traditional left back. I think Timber could operate in that same capacity for us next season if we do make that switch. If Zinchenko is injured, if again he's out of form, if we just have to switch tactics on the day and he needs a rest, if, say, Kivior comes back in at left back on that day, I think then you might see Timber start as a right back because he's a much better player in that inverted right role than I think Benjamin White is. And I rate Benjamin White quite highly. But Timber's ability to progress play when on the ball and his ability to distribute, I think he's something like in a 99th percentile of passes into the final third for a center back. He's at about 10 per match, just a shade under. And that's because he steps into midfield so much so he can make that final third pass. It's not coming from the defensive side, it's coming from the midfield third of the pitch. So those are kind of characteristics you see in, you know, in some other center backs as well across um, uh, kind of Europe's top five leagues where they're more progressive. So they do the same thing similarly some of the time. So I think when it comes to that, I think you're getting a player who, again, is part of that, as you guys have mentioned before, that kind of evolution around uh, what we want from our players under our title, where every year there's going to be some sort of big change to keep us fresh, so to speak. I do think that's why even though you look at our defensive options and you say, well, you know, the starting pair is Gabriel and Saliba. And I think that's pretty well established. Um, and then you presumably have Kivior as that left-sided center back backup. And then obviously Timber would come in as a much better player than Rob Holding. So immediately you raise the floor by default. You also raise the ceiling by default. But also, kind of more importantly, <clears throat> we don't know how we're going to operate tactically next season, right? So there's some people are suggesting we might have a very similar 3-2-4-1 as City or at least operate in that way some of the time. And if you look at it, if City go out and complete their deal for Jesko Gvardiol this summer, they have six starting center backs or starting grade center backs in their first team. So there's still kind of scope to suggest that like you still need that depth, right? So with Timber, I think he'll play. I think when you, when we're going out and spending money in the last three years, I think Arteta and Adu have shown that when they drop a certain number, like certain number on a player or above it, it's because they're going to be pretty key. Even if they're not going to be 
necessarily starting a match day one, the plan for some point of that season, or at least moving forward to the next season, that they're going to be pretty vital for the club. So I do think Timber has a pretty key role to play this season. I think we might be seeing him more than some of us expect. And also, not for nothing, but and we disagreed on some of the, the aspects around when Holding had to play. Holding's not a bad defender, per se, but from the defensive standpoint. But per, when it comes to his ability to progress play, it hit us so hard that Timber saw that immediately. So if we have to rest Saliba, or if we have to rest Gabrielle and Saliba might shift to left center back, you can put in Timber in that right back, or right center back rather, and you don't have that reduction in quality, which for me is one of the reasons why you know, we did have that skid late on in the season. So I quite like the deal. You know, I'm not really concerned about the money. I think he profiles quite well with the players we want to go after. Um, it's, and I think it's encouraging as well because it shows that we got so close to the title last season. Instead of kind of like, you know, kicking your heels and saying, oh, where do we go from here? There's a clear plan on where we go from here. And part of that's going to have to be evolve how we play in, in a progressive way, both on the pitch and just in terms of wanting to keep things fresh. That's a good thing. But also shows that, you know, the club are actually kind of serious about this project. And I think that kind of should put to bed any concerns a lot of the fans would have that, you know, that was our one last chance to, to win the league in the next 50 years or whatever it was. You know, I think you know, the bar is still quite high for Arteta where he wants his players and where he wants the club to go. So before we head out, I want to talk a little bit about probably one of the the biggest stories in in global football right now is the Saudi Arabia investments and the, I guess, what they're doing with the the Saudi Pro League and, and kind of, you know, from an arsenal and just, a little bit of just like a Premier League perspective, Luke. It's been pretty in you know, the numbers in the money that has been spent in will probably be spent by the end of the summer in the Saudi by Saudi Arabia is pretty staggering. Thinking of you know half a billion dollars for players a year over a couple of years. You know, Ngola Kante, a hundred million dollars a year for a couple of years. Obviously, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, we don't need to get into, you know, the end goal and, and where the money comes from and stuff like that. But you know, Arsenal are, are you know, one of our competitive rivals in Chelsea are, you know, kind of getting this get out free clause with a lot of their FFP uh, issues and you know, not necessarily all of their, FFP, but, you know, removing a lot of their big salaries in, in getting players like N'Golo Kante, they're getting, um, Eduard Mende off the books. Uh, I can't remember uh, some of uh, some of their other players. Um, Koulibaly is going to Saudi Arabia, and, and it just seems you know there's obviously this is sketchy. We all know that it's sketchy, but what do you think? Kind of like where do you think Saudi Arabia as a league is going to kind of fit into this new Euro slash global market? Well, it's kind of come out of nowhere, really, hasn't it? Um, yeah. And admittedly, we've seen some false dawns before, like, you know, when, when China tried to sign a lot of very expensive players and at one point Russia were really trying to kind of be that place. Obviously, Saudi Arabia's expendable income is a lot more so than than I think we saw Russia and China were willing to put into that. But at the same time, uh, these guys are doing this for some sort of ends meet, like these adventure capitalists at the end of the day, they're, they're doing it because they think at one point they're going to make money off of this. They want to make um, the league in Saudi Arabia, the biggest in the world. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see if it eventually pays dividends. But I do think that there's, and obviously we have to wait and see, because it's very, very new. 
but there's if it, it feels like there's a lot of kind of sketchy things going on like and obviously this hasn't happened yet but if the reporting is true around um ruben neves um who is potentially going to Saudi Arabia and then reported that he could be loaned back to Newcastle, who are obviously owned um, uh, by like essentially Saudi Arabia, then obviously that is a quite clear indication that, that Newcastle could be looking to use um, their Saudi Arabian ownership to get round FFP um, constrictions to, to be able to kind of sign better players. Obviously, again, that is just speculation. But I do think that when Saudi Arabia has a finger in the pot that is Chelsea. And then suddenly you've got players like, as you said, Koulibaly, who was signed, you know, this is a player in his in his, uh, in his his 30s that was signed last season that did not have a good season at Chelsea, if anything, a very, very bad season at Chelsea and and is on a, a pretty kind of large wage, even kind of by, by Chelsea standards. And Chelsea have gone from probably not being opposed to letting him go for free if they were lucky enough to find a club that could actually negotiate a contract with him to suddenly making money, like not in terms of, of profit on, on his previous transfer, but just some sort of legitimate, tangible feel for him, to me sounds just really, really unlikely. And and obviously, you know, there's there's caveats to this in the sense that it's reported that Thomas Party could be attracting um, uh, interest from over there, which I think is... Is similar, and, and I, I can understand if some Chelsea fans probably think it's hypocritical for us to, to mention both. I do think that personally, in terms of performances and in terms of quality of player, Party is probably a bit more of an asset than uh, than Koulibaly is. But obviously, that's down to opinion. But I do think that it's the fact that it's come so quickly. Do you know what I mean? Like, like Chelsea are in a bad position right now, where as you said, they have to sell players before a very specific date to comply with financial fair play and suddenly Mendy, Koulibaly, Zayesh, these players are all going for, for for fees. So they're actually making money. It's not just they're getting the wages of the wage bill, they're making money. So I do think that, um, uh, you know, I, I saw Ben Jacobs say in his Twitter thread earlier where he almost tried to absolve Chelsea of, of any wrongdoing to saying like they've just hit the jackpot. I feel like if you have to use the term, you know, they're not doing anything bad. They've just hit the jackpot in terms of outgoings. If you have to use that, then you're probably not Check really your coming there, from man. a completely honest <laughs> standpoint. Do you know what I mean? You're not really going like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, oh, you know, he's not doing anything wrong. He's just, he just won the lottery. So, you know, it's, yeah, what right the place, right time. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like we, we we went through years where we had to let Urza go for a free, we had to let Pamian go for a free, we had to let Mustafi and Kluznach essentially go for a free. We had to went through a lot of time where we were very, I'd say, not business savvy at all, and we put a lot of players on very big contracts where that ended up that they weren't going to be um, uh, as useful as we thought they were, and we were in situations where. Um, we couldn't sell them because their contracts were were too big. Like other teams, the, the teams that would realistically buy them weren't going to pay them the money they were on here, which is why they stayed here. And I think Manchester United have had a very similar problem. Um, and Chelsea, at this point in time, would have been in line to have a similar problem. But it just feels like, you know, they've had some sort of superhero in a cape fly over the, the horizon and say, no, you, you're desperate to sell these players. I'm going to give you money for them. So, you know, to me... Um, uh, and, you know, you have to wait and see. I don't want to make um, uh, too many assumptions. I want to wait and see actually what transpires and we'll see how it goes down. But for me, at this point in time, it does feel sketchy. 
Yeah. And I think that there's a big difference that, you know, you think about the money that's in the premier league and, you know, we talk about how many of the, how many of these clubs are, you know, owned by nation states and, Obviously, you know, that it's just the reality that we live by, you know, we're up against Manchester City and kind of what is frustrating about, you know, Manchester City is, oh, they're, they not only do they have unlimited wealth, but they're actually being smart. And when you get one of these clubs like a Chelsea, where it's like, yes, you know, they basically have operated, they're obviously not owned by Saudi Arabia or anything like that, but they've been operating as if they have unlimited wealth and, you know, when they've been dumb about it and, where most clubs, like you, you mentioned Manchester United, where they've struggled because they've made some really poor decisions. And that's how it's supposed to be. That if you, you know, how we lived by that, you know, we spent 72 million pounds on Nicolas Pepe and he's been terrible. He's been awful. And we would be, you know, he's going to be probably the last of the line of players that we're going to be, we're going to let go for free. And maybe unless he goes to Saudi Arabia and, it, it it feels like this with the Newcastle potentially. Obviously, we you, know, you never know what happens down the road. But if this, you know, they get loaned Ruben Neves, that's you know pretty much directly skirting FFP, and that's where I think obviously FFP is is it's a joke. But when you have again a, a nation state like Saudi Arabia, where it just feels like you said very sketchy. We obviously it's not something that it it just popped up out of the blue. But it's obviously been in the works for a very long time. And probably, you know, we go back to all the spending that Todd Bowley has done. And we all knew, like, you know, this is going terribly. Like, we kind of all laughed at the fact that, oh, well, Chelsea are going to have basically be have to throw away all these assets. And they're going to be terrible for a little bit, just like we went had to do. And now they get this, you know, incredible get out of jail free card. And... Basically, I you know I guess it's just one of those things. I guess that's the where uh, the Premier League in, in the world of football is at right now, and it's kind of disappointing and frustrating. But maybe we'll be able to utilize that and offload, like I said, Nicola Pepe or Thomas Party and things like that this summer. So I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap things up. We're gonna be back every week with some you know, different transfer roundups. Maybe have some guests and stuff like that. But it's gonna be an exciting summer. I know that I'm really excited to see all of these new Arsenal players come in and uh, spend more money than I could ever really comprehend in just a couple of months. Thank you guys for listening. My name is Justin. You can find me on Twitter at JFishAFC. Thank you to Luke. You can find on Twitter at Echocoon and Drew. You can find on Twitter at MixKidRemix. We'll talk to you you guys soon. Erdegaard is joining in and he's seen Saka beaten out by the race and touched in by Jesus. Oh, Saka. 